RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Katie Ashby Cobbins and Nick Kearney join me to talk about cases that are sort of in front of us, I guess, this week and an ongoing process, of course. And we'll start on that in just a moment. But guys, good to see you again. Thanks for coming on. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, morning, guys. Morning. Yeah, morning. Never a dull moment in the law. No, it's the fabric of society, I'm afraid. Yeah. Okay. So on this uh, legal hub, we're going to be looking at uh, the following. Global Digital Health Certification. We've been talking quite a bit about that on this program already. Criminal Activity Intervention Bill and what it means for cash. How much will you be able to hold and will you be able to hold on to it? We'll find out about that. And then the census, Stats New Zealand hounding people. I've had them knocking on the door twice and I'm stalling them. I'll be honest about that. I'm stalling them. I'm not very happy about being involved in the census, but that's another story. Uh, but first, guys, I thought we could just follow up on uh, the the main point that we talked about last week, which was the IPCA report that dropped into the parliamentary protests. Now, it's a, it's a big report, take a while to, to get through everything, obviously, and we concentrated on a specific part of it when we talked about it last week. But you've had a week to digest it, think about it. Any thoughts on that before we move on to the other stuff? Sure. Uh, look, I've certainly had a chance to reflect on it for a bit um, longer, and if this was my organisation, I would be uh, extremely embarrassed about this report. Uh, there was not many flattering comments made about the police, their attention to detail, their preparedness, um, their planning, uh, and they come under attack um, uh, a lot and a lot of recommendations are made for them to improve on their behaviour um, and their conduct. Uh, but uh, I am surprised that um, Commissioner Costa uh, felt he could stand up in front of a, a media uh, or a press um, session and explain that he thought that it was a, a, a good report uh, when it clearly um, left a lot of questions about uh, the police's conduct on a generic basis. Um, I am surprised that the report uh, failed to go into uh, you know, a lot of the um, significant complaints and have instead said they'll um, put uh, or deal with those individually and separately from the report. Um, to me, that seems quite uh, selective um, and perhaps intentionally so. Why would the police commissioner be so happy about it when it's that obvious that's just spin then, isn't it? Just spin, trying to promote himself. Look, I don't know. Um, I think that, you know, perhaps if you say something often enough, people begin to believe it. Um, if you say it with confidence, perhaps people believe it. We touched on last week uh, how damning you know, some of the key things were, you know, failure to get CCTV footage from at least three key uh, locations seems pretty, um, uh, a, a lack of foresight on them. Well, that's basic stuff, isn't it? That's Well, you know, stuff. police, they, do that they gather day. evidence. Exactly. They gather evidence. It's their job. They investigate things all the time, collect evidence, prepare cases. Um, and it just was very surprising that they failed to um, collect. Unless they... Evidence. They wanted to minimise what, this is me talking, what that uh, CCTV footage might have shown. Yeah. And, I mean, we had our own, I guess, the at the protest there was their own CCTV footage because you had a lot of people um, filming live um, and showing what was happening on the ground. Um, 
Maybe the the only thing they looked at was the <clears throat> mainstream media footage from that tiny little perch that only had about a, a hundred meter width of view. <laughs> yeah, look, perhaps I mean there was definitely a lot of cameras there, and the police were taking a lot of um, footage themselves. So um, I don't know whether that ends up going to the Independent Police Complaints Authority for them to consider as well. Uh, but look, it just seems like a pretty basic fundamental. Um, thing to have collected the CCTV footage around the area and then to have failed to have done so. But it, it was a bit of a calamity of errors throughout, you know, the failure to communicate throughout, the failure to traffic management plan, the failure to respond to um, uh, the um, convoys as they were moving through, um, despite supposedly having good intelligence on those convoys. Um yeah. Well, they would have good intel because they've got police officers all around the country who are out on the roads and see what's happening, right? I mean, oh, and they and they monitor open um, socials, so it wasn't exactly um, hidden. You could have anyone could have watched Facebook and watched um, the convoys come down, um, both down and up the country. And uh, Nick, from your <clears throat> memory as being in the police, the police rank and file must know that. This wasn't well handled. They must know that. Yeah, uh, I, I think I'm not open to um, any of them really. Um, but yes, I, I would. I would agree. Um, I, I would agree. They would look at that um, uh, the day and and now on reflection and say that was a bit of a shambles. And I think I used that word um, last week too to describe the report. And certainly, um, it kind of backed up you know the events of the day. And the events of the day were. Uh, plainly, a, you know, a, a result, and, and this is what the report said, plainly a result of the, as Katie has mentioned, the lack of preparedness, uh, lack of communication by the police um, in general, the, the, the top, I'm talking the top brass, you know, commissioner down to all the commanders and the people meant to be um, running the organisation in terms of the uh, the protest and that operation. Um, that, that in, in my view, is where the the, lay, the blame needs to be needs to be laid. And I think I made kind of uh, a bit of a mitigation last week for the individual officers on the front line because they were the, uh, I guess, the four guys, if that's the right way to put it, for uh, the lack of preparedness and all the work that went, or lack of work that went um, went, went above them. Um, so I had, look, I had a chart and I, and I when I, you know, read the report, I, uh, going through my mind was the fact that it read more like a commission of inquiry or some royal commission rather than a, a, a report by... Uh, an organisation that is meant to uh, oversee the the enforcement arm of, um, of the state and to say, well, actually, that conduct was unacceptable and that was unacceptable and this must happen as a result. This person must get fired or you must do this or something. So I thought, well, this is a bit weird because it kind of just gave, as, as I say, it was just kind of a very um, soft report that, you know, kind of said, oh, you should probably do this next time and that wasn't very good over there. But, you know, never mind, that's, that's just what we saw. That's what we think. Um, it was a, so I, I looked at the the legislation that governed the IPCA because I thought, well, why haven't they, you know, sanctioned individual officers, even you know some of the area commanders, or why haven't they, um, you know, um, not that they can sanction them, but recommended sanctions at least, or recommended some sort of uh, punitive, um, uh, I guess, behaviour or something. But uh, the legislation allows for the IPCA to um, to issue recommendations to the commissioner based on you know, on officers' actions, and that's kind of just what it did, really. It just said, oh, um, you know, 
here's a bunch of recommendations in each chapter and make sure you do them so it doesn't happen again. And that's about the end of it. Uh, so overall, you know, um, I'm quite, um, you know, as, as Katie is, I'm quite disappointed with, with the way um, it, it's kind of been written um, and the, the end result in a way, because I think it's a, it was a very, very, very dark day in this country's um, chapter and um, well, history, I should say, and it deserved more than just a um, than, than what we got, in, in, in my view. Um, so, and I think I said a couple of weeks ago, um, so the week before, um, or the show on the week before that the report came out that um, you know, all the all the politicians and particularly you know the leader of the opposition at the moment was very very quick in Parliament to um, throw their support behind the police the day after or two days after that operation um, ended and pat each other on the back and you know he and, and the speaker even congratulated you know Chris Luxon and said thank you for your cooperation you're all marvellous and weren't we all good and weren't the police outstanding? And it was all self-congratulatory. Uh, and I said at the time that maybe some of those words were perhaps a bit preemptive. And I think, um, I don't know, if you know if, if the politicians, Luxon, Mr Luxon, or even the Prime Minister or others have read this report, probably haven't, but I think they should, and perhaps take a moment or two to reflect upon their words um, uh, at that time. Could we say just one more on this, and this is just from me, and I think it's an obvious question for Mr. and Mrs. Average to ask, given you know what looks like a bit of a dad's army affair, and that's just being polite about it, are our police capable of handling a big event? Uh, look, probably not in accordance with their key values, uh, which is in respect, integrity, and empathy. Um, I don't I don't think the police are behaving as an independent, uh, separate arm. I think they're being quite political, uh, and we've seen that uh, in their in the Posey Parker event, which you know you compare it to Wellington and the the complete you know the polar opposites of of what went on. Um, I think a lot of people have probably lost uh, faith. Uh, in the police and will be cautious to trust. Um, whereas I think going into the protest, uh, had the police you know, acted quite quickly, uh, the, the issue wasn't ever with the police at that time. The issue was that your know, government wasn't listening to people uh, and uh, people were coming to government to have their voices heard. They paid all the taxes all their, all their lives. They were um, doctors and nurses uh, teachers uh, and you know thought that they had a chance to be heard and and, and they really weren't. So I don't perceive that the police do have. Uh, uh, I guess values. what I'm what I'm saying are they competent? Well, are they competent? I, actually, Paula, if I just go back, um, it's been a week since I've touched on the report, but I think it made a, a comment. There was a comment made in the report that it wasn't until the army got involved in terms of the organisation uh, of the protest and the, how to disperse it, that um, it, the plan started to come together. Um, uh, and I think, you know, NZDF Defence Forces, I think, were um, mostly responsible for allowing the police to get organised a bit better. So that, um, and Katie might correct me, but I, I recall reading something like that. So, um, and certainly, certainly in the report, it definitely said 
that since the disbanding of the team policing units and their refocus on how they deal with uh, mass events like this, no, they, they, they have not had enough training. Um, and certainly uh, it, some of them may have had, but that's a very, very, very small percentage of the overall population of the police service. Uh, and so um, of those police officers who were there uh, on the day, the hundreds, um, you can you, you can probably say about 5% of them had actually been trained and, and experienced something like that before perhaps or knew a little bit about that sort of um, policing and the rest of them um, simply had no idea because they, um, in the report said they simply had not had enough training um, and we don't have enough sort of big events like that, thank goodness, I suppose. Um, to, to deal with it. So uh, you say other other police competent. Um, I, I think no. I think you know the word the IPCA report did not use the word the police actually overall on that day were incompetent. But um, but certainly they don't they didn't have to say that word because it was quite clear from from the words used the language used that that's that's how they um, the IPCA viewed it. And they keep their jobs, the uh, management. So that's nice, isn't it? <laughs> For such a great job. Yeah, well, and that, and that goes back to, you know, um, what, what Katie just said before, you know, when Andrew Costa, the commissioner, um, went on and said, oh, we did a fabulous job and we, it was all good. I mean, it's Katie's right in that, um, you know, he gets on the media and says this stuff and uh, no media, you know, sort of question him. I can guarantee of the mainstream media in this country. How many have read that report from top to bottom? I'd say probably none. Uh, you know, maybe one or two, perhaps. Um, and, and so he, the, the, he's certainly not quizzed on it. Um, I heard him on um, Mike Hoskins' radio show, and, and I think, did Hoskins give him a hard time? Not really, I don't think. So he just says that, and um, people read it and hear it. They don't, I mean, how many of this, this country's population have read the 228 pages report? Again, probably none of them. You know, I mean, Katie and I, I've read most, Katie has, but the people who are interested in this stuff have. Um, perhaps listeners on this show, some of them might have. By by and large, the vast majority of, of the public gets on with their lives and aren't, you know, don't have time to read 224 pages of that sort of stuff. Uh, they, they listen to the media. They listen to Costa say, we did a great job. They listen to Mr. Luxon down in Parliament say, you guys are fantastic. And that's what they believe, and that's I'm afraid that that's the reality of it. I'm afraid for, you know, for a, a large percentage of the population. All right, moving on then uh, to let's um, tackle this global digital um, certification. That, as I understand it, there are two parts to this. There's the um, the digital pass, <clears throat> um, vaccine pass, whatever you want to call it. And then there are the regulations as a separate separate package, which govern the way the WHO control or, uh, well, control, I suppose, pandemics or uh, outbreaks of interest or whatever they want to call it. So are we are we signing up to this? Are we in danger of signing up to this? Uh, look, from what I've seen, and I will be in a better position to talk about it more full, fully next week, but, yes, I think uh, most um, uh, First World nations are, are looking at signing up to this, and it's uh, a real um uh, it's something that's important for people to be aware of because, uh, you know, it doesn't look like these vaccine requirements have gone um, with COVID going. It looks like, uh, you know, you're going to have to be able to roll up your sleeves for all sorts. Um, or you're going nowhere, right? <laughs> you're, you're staying at home. That's it. Like your home. Over OE experience, experiences that it's all over. 
Correct. Well, I mean, you know, move into your 15-minute city perhaps. Right. Okay. Yeah, because here's what I've done in the people, the limited number of people I've sort of got around in the last week. I've brought this up on a few occasions. No one I've talked to had any idea about it at all. I've never heard of it. No. And, and when I started to explain it, they, you know, the, 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 you could hear the electrical arcing between their ears. They kind of didn't understand it and didn't want to know about it. Exactly right. And I had a lady I spoke to on at, at Friday night at dinner, and she goes, oh, that's all over, isn't it? Uh, and I said, look, um, it was discussed last year at the G18 in Bali. Um, it was brought up, I think, by Tony Blair, uh, who's the proponent uh, of this, and uh, it doesn't look like it's going away. And to be able to get on a plane uh, possibly anywhere in the future, you're going to have to be able to uh, prove that you've undergone um XYZ medical procedures, or else you're not allowed to go. And that will consist of vaccines, most probably, and we don't even know what form they will take, given what we've experienced now. So, I mean, how can well, people it's, do it's, this it's, to uh, other people? Make think, them do this. It's yeah. crazy. Well, they've just Paul, done it, Paul. Yeah. And, and, it's not, and it's more than just, um, I guess it's more than just uh, uh, vaccines. Um it allows the Director General of the World Health Organization just to declare there's a pandemic in respect of a certain disease or virus. Uh, and so um, sovereign countries like New Zealand um, just fall under that and say, oh, okay, well, you've declared a pandemic. Who are we to argue with you? Um, and 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 then, you know, um, this is where the loss of sovereignty comes in in terms of, you know, our individual right as a country to say, well, actually, we should be able to make our own laws and decide actually what is a, um, you know, a, a pandemic or what, what what we should be doing with our own citizens, but we're not going to be allowed to do that. But I think if I remember rightly, going back in time, uh, didn't the World Health Organization, Katie may be on top of this more than I am, didn't they change the definition of uh, vaccine or disease or something during the, the, um, the COVID pandemic? Uh, yes, they, correct. Yes, Either or, not sure which. And oh, then, the, the yeah. definition was changed by the FDA um, because all of these um, uh, tricks, the anti-vaxxers kept citing back the definition to the FDA um, as to what the definition of a vaccine was. So um, they changed the definition um, because it was most inconvenient. So you and just then, changed the definition. Easy. Yeah, easy. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then... Uh, if you remember, uh, maybe going back, what, six or nine months, maybe a bit longer, when monkeypox hit the world um, and uh, the Director General of the WHO was very quick to say, oh, this could be a pandemic, you see. And I, I remember at one press conference um, when Jacinda Ardern was still Prime Minister, uh, she turned to the media and said, does not anyone want to ask me about monkeypox? You see, I mean, you know, this is quite this is quite serious. We're really at the, at the affected about two people and quite other side of the world. But um, you know, again, maybe a false flag or something. I'm not sure, but that sort of um, disease or virus or that sort of um, incident, and in, in the future with with this global health, um, this global digital vaccine certification, the, the the director general of the WHO can just say, oh well. Monkeypox is now a pandemic, and everybody must receive a vaccine for monkeypox. And you cannot travel to America or Australia or anywhere out of New Zealand if you haven't got the vaccine for monkeypox. Um, and, and as I understand it, it's pretty much that simple. 
That's scary. That's that's dystopian scary. Um, will a population accept that? Though you just said, Katie, before it's already happened. So people have already oh, I, and I think this swallowed what, that one already. And I think this is what a lot of people were saying um, at the time. You know, if, if you agree to this now, you know, where's your um, end stop? Like, what what will you actually say no to? Um, and I, you know, they're giving it a go. Um, and let's see how much pushback they get. Uh, there is definitely a noticeable amount of um, people saying no to boosters and particularly the bivalents. Um, but, you know, fear has been an effective campaign for COVID and there's still people that um, are absolutely terrified. And also there are people who want to travel and we saw that they'll do this just so they can travel. They'll just throw away their... Um, oh, absolutely. One of my girlfriends had heart issues after her second and in order to go to Fiji, uh, she went and got the AstraZeneca because it, you know, didn't have so many issues around um, myocarditis. You know, how's that for... Oh, man. Uh, and it had COVID. <laughs> so oh, I don't crikey. know what... I, I don't know what... I don't know where your where your line in the sand is. We're sitting ducks. We're sitting ducks. That's what we are. We're we're just sitting ducks for this. Um, how could a politician sell their national sovereignty away like that? I, I don't get that. And why would the citizenry let it? A lot of the time, the citizenry doesn't know. Oh dear, it's, it just keeps getting better, doesn't it? Okay, and this so- is why it's so important to be a platform um, like Reality Check Radio to talk about these things, um, to, to to be informative, to be able to um, you know let people know that these are real issues um, that you know are, are going to keep plaguing us until um, you know we stand up and stand up together. Yeah, the other place I was at before here, I tried to raise this with a few people and. How could that ever happen? That's crazy. You know, that's over there. This is over here. Uh, there's like a willful pushing away of the problem. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. I, I, I had someone do that to me the other day, and they're like, when I explained to 15-minute cities and what was happening in Oxford, um, and, you know, if you leave Oxford, I think, or one of these 15-minute spaces in Oxford, um, more than, I think, 75 times in a year, you then have to start paying for something. And... Um, uh, it was just quite um, funny. The message I got back from her was a screenshot of uh, a council website saying, yes, we've got 15-minute cities, but it's for the environment that we're doing this. Oh, that's all right then. Yeah, so, yeah. That's okay. All very Orwellian. Yeah, well, you know, um, don't know about you, but I get kind of disappointed in my fellow citizens for not being as sharp as they should be about these things because if we don't object to these things, at scale, we lose, don't we, inevitably? That's the key. That's the key, and we need to talk about it, um, and we need to explore what the options are, and um, I hope Legal Hub is is useful for that. I'm sure it will be. Well, I guess I'll have to get used to not going anywhere in the future. All right. Uh, But then limited potentially to 15-minute areas, so it, it gets even more constricted potentially. Anyway, worst case scenario, I suppose. Do we know the time frame on that? I think they're going to make a move on that pretty soon, aren't they? The they, the WHO? Yeah, look, they're working on and developing the um, smart guidelines on the digital documentation. 
uh, I will have more information for you next week. Um, okay. Yeah, let's look at it then. And uh, we can touch about touch upon it then uh, again. I'm becoming quite allergic to QR codes now. I used to think they're quite convenient, but I don't like them anymore. Well, look, I mean, that's a perfect example. We've been out uh, for a couple of times for dinner and um, uh, I'll just be sat at the table and they'll say, they'll let you know that the menu is on a QR code, which you can look at on your phone. And um, if you just order uh, from there, then your food will be delivered. And if I wanted that, I would order from home and get takeaway Uh I don't want that. I've gone out for dinner because I'd like to be served. I'd yes. like to look at a paper menu. Um, so again, it's a case of walking out of the restaurant if um, you know if you're dissatisfied with that as service. Um, and then you know the cheek of it to ask for a tip at the time that you pay before <laughs> you've even had any service. Um, the irony is rife. Oh, <laughs> it's too much. All right. Well, that sounds pretty scary. Uh, let's get on to this uh, issue of the Criminal Activity Intervention Bill. And is this all around money laundering and the um, place that puts cash in over a particular amount? So what's what's all this about? Well, I think 2008 introduced uh, in this country the um, Anti-Money Laundering Counter-Financing Terrorism Legislation, AMLCFT as it's um, abbreviated, uh, and that came in in various stages for, um, uh, at the start, I think it might have been banks and then other financial institutions and then um, uh, you know, stockbrokers and, and the like, uh, finance companies o- over the years. And then probably, uh, I don't know, four, five, uh, five years ago or so, it got introduced um, to, to accountants, lawyers and real estate agents in the phase two, I think it was called at the time. Uh, of the introduction to the legislation, and it requires each of those, uh, as they're called, um, reporting entities to identify all of their clients at the time they come on board and use them as a client, um, um, identify them by getting their passport, finding out where they live, getting proof of address, um, and if they, if the client, and particularly you know, as a law firm, we have to do this quite a bit, the client is a, is a company or a trust, we have to dig into the um, organization, the trust or the company to find out uh, who, who behind the scenes is actually the owner, identify those beneficial owners, find out where the source of their money came from, um, you know, uh, a source of funds it's called and source of wealth, uh, ask all these questions of our, of our clients, most, in fact, not most, almost all of whom are just ordinary mum and dad citizens and now we're probing around saying, well, aren't you a, a terrorist or, or, or financing terrorism or money laundering or something? Of course, they're not. But we have to do it, and, and it's a regulatory burden on us now. Um, and as part of as part of all that, um, there are if, if you receive uh, a certain amount of cash uh, over a threshold, which is ten thousand dollars, it's automatically a suspicious transaction, and you have to report it to the um, to the um, basically the DIA through the financial intelligence unit of the police, I think, actually. You have to you have to actually file a report with the financial intelligence unit, saying that your client has given you ten thousand dollars in cash, and this is who it is, and that's all you do. Um, and whether they want to take it further or not, whether they store it for intelligence or whatever, is, is I guess up to them. Um, so that's kind of the background to it, uh, the, and the, with the ten thousand dollar being the limit, 
and under the um, AML laws, you know, um, uh, that's what organisations are required to do. Well, helpfully, I suppose, if you want to think of it as being helpful, uh, this criminal inter activity intervention bill uh, removes that, and, and you think, well, that's a good thing, perhaps, but they remove it by actually prohibiting uh, cash transactions uh, for certain uh, specified high-value goods um, for $10,000 or over. And that means nobody, it will be illegal, uh, as from 11 May this year, it will be unlawful and illegal to pay in cash or to receive cash on transactions such as buying or selling jewellery, buying or selling watches, uh, gold, silver, or other precious metals, uh, or diamonds, sapphires, or other precious stones, uh, motor vehicles, or uh, ships uh, that float on the, that not float that you know travel on the sea. Ships, so, so, ships, yeah. So <laughs> okay. if you can buy a ship for ten thousand dollars, Paul, I'd like to um, I'd like you to show me where it is. Well, it's probably um, the, all all the um, rail ferries are worth now. They keep breaking down all the time. So, right. so so it will be pro prohibited to to do that. Um, you can't accept the cash and you can't pay for any of those items in, in cash. And uh, and in the parliament, you know, um, the when, when this bill was going through parliament, um, it was uh, being applauded, I suppose, or recommended because it was seeing, oh, we're now cracking down on gangs and, and, and gangs that hoard cash and they can't explain where it's come from. We'll take the cash off them and they won't be able to deal anymore because, you know, we're removing their cash um, system from them. But at the end of the day, that, what it also actually says is that um, if a, a police discover that someone has got $10,000 or more in cash, not only, you know, not just have they bought or sold any of those items uh, in cash, but if they've got in their possession $10,000 or more in cash, unless they can provide a genuine reason as to how they came about, how, it came, how they came about to having it, is taken off them until they can prove the legitimacy of the cash. Um, wow. Okay. Just taken off them, and, and uh, or until the police have um, applied for a forfeiture order or other order that it be um, you know handed over to them because it's a result of criminal proceeds and that order has been declined. So until uh, either of those two things. Um, you don't get your cash. Now, people might think, oh, well, that's, um, you know, why is someone hoarding $10,000 in cash anyway? But there are actually genuine reasons why people um, do hoard a lot of cash. Um, there's a lot of people who have uh, distrust, I guess, in, in, the, in, in the electronic banking system. Um, there are a lot of elderly people um, who, um, you know, still carry a lot of cash. Uh, and uh, maybe it's 10, not $10,000, but, um, you know, it could well accumulate to being that over a, a period of time. Uh, and, you know, for example, let's use the uh, example of, of my mother who um, is 80, 86 now and she's had um, the pleasure of paying something by way of cheque taken off her. She can't use and won't use internet banking, doesn't understand it. Um, certainly hasn't got a phone banking app on her, uh, on her phone. Uh, and so, and, and now she you know, pops in her car, drives down the road to uh, pay bills at, at the banks um, and takes her invoices and receipts and stuff with her that she gets that get posted to her because she hasn't got email, you know. Um, and, of course, all the bank branches have closed as well. Uh, and so she occasionally gets me to pay for something on her behalf and, and uh, reimburses me for that payment. Now, 
for people like her uh, and others in her situation, I, I think that they could genuinely believe that hoarding a lot of cash, drawing it out and just keeping it in their house uh, so they could pay stuff to get through life, which they're actually finding a lot of these elderly people and people who are not that digitally equipped are actually finding it quite difficult to um, to get through life in the way that it currently operates. Uh, but they are essentially going to be treated um, if they have more than $10,000 as criminals. And until they can legitimately provide a genuine reason as to why they've got it, it'll be taken off them. Isn't that guilty until proven innocent? Isn't that the wrong way around? Uh, yeah, well, well, it seems to be. Um, it seems to be. But those the the criminal forfeiture legislation, um, proceeds of crimes and everything is, is designed that way anyway. So it, it is, in fact, the AML law, uh, by by its very nature, is you are a terrorist and, and you finance in terrorism until you prove otherwise, because it treats everybody uh, in that way, because we have to get identification and dig into the source of wealth and funds of everybody, not just the clients who we think might, we might have a reasonable suspicion of being engaged in some sort of, you know, nefarious activity. So it treats everybody with that broad brush. Um, without, you know, uh, fear nor favour, without, you know, people like us, such as lawyers, being able to use our judgment to say, well, hang on, this is nonsense. Uh, I've dealt with these people for 20 years and there's no way in the world that they're financing terrorism or, or laundering money. But so this, this is what this, um, this type of legislation does. It's very common. And does that mean that uh, if you want to drive cash out of the system, this is a good way to start? Potentially, yeah. And Katie, have you got a, a comment on that? I guess my first thought is, yes, it might be utilised to drive cash out of the system, but the the very strong push to have everything go electronic, um, I, I suspect people are going to operate in cash or some other uh, type of commodity uh, outside of uh, the system. You might see more bartering and the like. I'm not sure that this piece of legislation will um, eradicate uh cash altogether. Um, no, but it's ha- the start, right? That it, it sort of sends the signal, that it, it, it sort of sets, frames it up in that way. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly other um, things that are pushing towards the cashless, but perhaps you'll find a situation that, you know, if my grandparents who might have stuffed their mattress with cash, uh, you might be a bit more cautious to have that amount of cash store in their mattress. Um they still need to get found. They still is it a total amount of cash or just like a – is it a total amount of cash or just a wad of it? Because I was just thinking, you know, let's say I want to buy the jet ski and proceeds of drugs or whatever, and it's 10 grand. Well, you know, I can give them 5K now and 2.5K later on and dribble the rest in later, you know. I think it's 10 – yeah, I, look, it's it says $10,000. Um, it could be. Isn't it? Yeah. That it covers yeah. off those sorts of part payments. Right. Payment. It, it um, does. It does. You can't make those part payments. You still fall foul of a ten thousand dollar limit. Yeah. So make sure your jet ski is just nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars. <laughs> um, just on okay. that though, um, I, I've always noticed though with the requirement of this additional um, checking, um, as Nick was describing before, with people that uh, look to be engaged, look to engage law firms and accountants. Invariably, that created a significant additional amount of administration work for uh, law firms and accountants, but that was also passed on to lawyers, uh, onto the client as well. So, you know, your cost could be 
increased by at least five hundred to a thousand dollars without uh, with just having to get these checks done um, over and above getting the legal advice that you're or the accounting advice that you're going to. So, you know, it's it's yet another cost for uh, compliance and regulation um, that we're seeing. Right. That. Regularly. Loading people up with more. Um, I'm just thinking too. Also, a lot of people are. I think you touched on it, Nick. You know, kind of suspicious of the banking system. I think you said, but also suspicious of government and overreach. So, it would be uh, understandable for people to want to have cash on hand to maintain anonymity and sort of independence in in their banking or their transactions. Do you think the the police would buy? Yeah, well, I don't trust the government <laughs> as a legitimate uh, reason to be holding the money. Look, people might think, well, you know, why would you hoard or, or, or stash ten thousand dollars in cash? It's a lot of cash to hold. If you went into the bank uh, and drew out, you know, um, my mother used her as an example, went into the bank and said, "I would like to withdraw ten thousand dollars in cash, please, and hundred dollar notes." Um, the bank might manager might walk over and say, "Well, why are you doing this?" But it's really none of their business, and uh, they would probably have to file a report under their money laundering uh, rules and stuff and bits and pieces. Um, but legitimately, you know, uh, there are. I mean, I'm using her as an example, but she doesn't do it this way. But um, I do know of people who um, find it easier just to budget each week by um, paying for stuff in cash. And they go through their income and they go through what their payments are and they say, well, each week I have discretionary income of $100, right? So um, I don't want to be flashing my card around everywhere, everywhere I go because I lose track of what I've spent, you know? I mean, I bought two coffees and then lunch and then I went to the pub and had a beer and bought Paul dinner or something. But oh, how much have I spent this week in my discretionary? Oh, God, I, I can't add it up. So, so they'll draw out cash and they'll keep it with them. And so they know that, well, once that, you know, $100 is gone on my coffees and my lunches for the week, I've got to scrimp and save till the next week or whatever. Uh, well, that's my budget. So that's how they budget themselves. Um, and, and look, you know, will someone budget by ha- having $10,000 in their house and getting through the whole year? Um, well, quite possibly, you know, I mean, quite quite possibly. Uh, and But this, this, you know, I guess, I guess if that happened, this person could say if the police knocked on their door and the police are probably never going to find out that they're, that's their budgeting uh, lifestyle anyway, but if, if they knocked on their door, they probably would have a reasonable excuse. This is how I live my life. Um, but, yeah, it, it's still, you know, you shouldn't have to when cash is legal tender in this country. Um, you shouldn't have to be able to uh, explain away your existence like this. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, none of, it's none of your business, um, Really, you know, it should be the opposite way around, as we've just alluded to. It should be, well, if you think I've got this money through um, criminal activity and through uh, buying and selling drugs or stealing stuff and and getting paid for it or whatever, then go ahead and prove it, right? Yeah. That's how the system works, right? Um, don't just make me feel uncomfortable but haven't justified my existence for having it. Yeah, okay. Anything more to say about that, Katie? No, I, okay. look, I mean, it's it, it's $10,000 isn't really that much. In, well, it's a lot, but it's not um, unimaginable that people might have that amount of uh, cash. The question is, is where does it stop? If it's cash now, what is it next? Good point, yeah. Do we then have, you know, the fact that you've got to start registering or does it create an automatic regist- 
register for jewellery and things like that. So, you know, there, there's a record of what you might then um, their own. It's it's a case of where it stops and, you know, what what this is a stepping stone towards. Yeah. And, and and at this at the rate at which things are moving and um uh it 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 could just be a stepping stone to somewhere else. We talked last week for like the end of the eighth clauses and that uh, weather bill, severe severe weather bill. Um well, you know, this ten thousand dollar will be a limit in the regulations and 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 it would not stop a minister in thirty five seconds just to say, Oh, I'm gonna make it five now. Right. And then um and then we're done and and you know um, if it's a regulation, it's, as I say, there's no debate about it. There's no law passed. It's just done by the minister's um, pen by order and council. So, and that was, you know, we discussed that last week with the Henry VIII type stuff. So, what you know, the slow creep. Once you start with ten thousand, it could be five, then it would be two, and then, goodness, why we even got anything? What you shouldn't be able to hoard cash at all. Oh, oh, oh I know. We'll make it easy. We should, should, shouldn't even have cash. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you, you know, exactly. Uh, we can stop. We can stop having to pass all these laws. Uh, by just not having cash, how how simple is that? Um, but the other the other thing I, I you know interestingly I, I always um, uh, this is one of the you know because I followed this AML legislation quite carefully and I'm, I'm, I'm somebody who took a lot of interest in it because um, I'm a bit of a geek like that. But um, it, it, you know I look at law like this that ninety eight percent of the top population um, maybe even more. Um, don't even need the law, and you might say, "Well, what, what do you what do you mean by that?" And it's like, well, um, but you know, the AML, CFT, anti money laundering stuff. Um, I, I don't. I think in in eight years or seven years of it being practiced, I think we might have filed two reports of some sort of suspicious activity or three. And I'm talking I've dealt with tens of thousands of situations over that time or, or transactions, right? So for by and large, people are not criminals, they're not money launderers, they're not terrorists. You can pass all the laws you want in respect of them. They get punished, the middle class, New Zealand, the mum and dads, and they get punished severely by having to comply with this nonsense that, that really that they're not, you know, um, breaking anyway. But the ones that it's meant to punish, the gang members, the headhunters, the house angels and those like, uh, they thumb their nose at the law. They couldn't give a stuff about the law, right? And so you, you can pass as many laws as you like, take their guns off them, take their money off them, um, you know, uh, take their houses off them, do this, do that. They just don't care. And, and you know, um, do you think that the, the you know the, the mongrel mob or the black power are going to care that now can't hoard ten thousand dollars in cash? Of course they're not, right? So they're just going to they they, just, they live their whole life by ignoring the law. That's that's their uh, raison d'etre. So you know it's. Uh, the, the ordinary folk like my mum is going to be affected, but the ones who they think they're trying to capture, uh, the, the, the black power and the mongrel mob, they're, they're just simply going to just laugh and just carry on. All right, let's um, look at the census now. And uh, I, I've had the census people around twice wanting to know where my form is. They've been very polite, young men, but uh, they are persistent. Why are we talking about the census, Katie? Oh, why are we worried about the census? Well, uh, look, that's um, I, I, I am surprised at um, uh, the veracity at which uh, these enumerators, they're called, um, are, are requesting or seeking um, the census papers back. And I did the census. I was a numerator oh, back when I was going through um, university. And there was a point where if you couldn't get a paper back, 
you just reasonably left it. You uh, let it go, right? You let it go. You let it go. And uh, for the most part, people, I think, uh, were quite genuinely interested in, in providing the information that they were asked on the census um, ordinarily, but certainly things have changed and people, I think, are a bit more wary um, and, a, and a bit concerned about uh, you know the intensity at which this information is being sought, uh, the the changes uh, in information where you've got um, your sex question, what, what sex are you is different from what gender you are, and I think that upset quite a few people, particularly where um, there was uh, no way of answering it, certainly on the ele- uh, electronic version of the census form without um, uh, you, know, you you were forced to answer. Uh, that gender question. Um, there is uh, the, the act changed last year, the Data and Statistics Act. Um, it was 2022. The uh, fines increased for failing to um, uh, participate or provide that answer or that information. Uh, we certainly have uh, not just the census happening at this time, we've also got um, Statistics New Zealand uh, asking people specifically um, some you know, extra questions over and above just the census. And a lot of people have been really concerned about um, the intensity at which that information is being sought. Uh, so it's out there. People, um, you know, the government's very keen to get all of this information and data back. Um, and it's, you know, people are, are, are indicating by not participating um, what their views are or their concerns are. Uh, but there are, you know, there are some fines that people need to be aware of. Should they not compare, um, not 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 provide the data that or the information that's being sought? Yeah. So, do you think um, the sensing that uh, the the buy-in hasn't been as big as it should be? And I've heard eighty-three percent is the fill-out, but it, it might even be a bit lower than that. Who knows? So, are they the kind of desperate to? To save the senses, by the sounds of things, so they don't want it to look that like like a kind of a fail. Look, that's perhaps um, why they are. There's been a few people that have emailed in uh, suggesting that um, they're being bribed to or, or being offered something to complete their senses. Really, um, like what? I don't know. I've gone back to the KFC vouchers. Two people have mentioned it, and I've gone back to them saying, "Please tell me what these bribes are about." So, um, but they've they've indicated that there's something on offer should they complete um, their census forms and return them. So, you know, that just seems incredible. Um, yeah, well, I, I would hope that's not the case, mind you. That was tried with the jab. Well, successfully, so I think pack and save vouchers, um, buckets of KFC. Um, that was that the. Coercion was huge. Yeah, so that it's already been done. So why not? But works. Why not try it again? Correct. I suppose. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, what what is the uh, penalty for not filling it in? Given that if lots of people don't fill it in, it's going to be hard to prosecute everyone. I guess they'll make an example of a few. Probably me, actually, the way it will turn out. But um, you know, are you for the high jump? Look, I think it's um, two thousand uh, dollars for an individual, and maybe twelve thousand for um, an organisation or agency uh, for not completing the forms. I'll just quickly. But they'd have to they'd have to be able to police that, wouldn't they? They'd have to be able to follow that up and 
identify potentially a lot of people. Would they have the capacity for that? Probably not, I, I would say. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. I can't answer that, sorry. That's a big effort, though, isn't it? If you're chasing up 17% of the population who hasn't filled out the census with the intention of finding them, that's a big job. It's not possible, is it? I'm just wondering how safe I am from, from any consequences. <laughs> Maybe we should cease talking about it, Paul, um, now. I've just, given them um, ideas. So, that, that, <laughs> so that, at, that you're not on their radar. Back at Census HQ, they're like tuning in, taking notes, recording it all. Okay, that's that's good advice, Katie. Thank you for that. All right, so uh, be nice to the census people, though. They're only doing their jobs, and most of them are young people, and I'm sure a few of them have had, you know, Tense times on doorsteps, I would imagine by now, probably getting used to it. All right, and just to um, finish up, I noticed that a class action lawsuit has been launched in Australia, re-vaccine injuries by a Queensland doctor, and uh, we talked about that yesterday morning here as we're sort of looking at the overseas news. So that's what's happening in Australia. Is there any chance of that happening here at any sort of level? Yeah, sure. So the uh, action you're speaking of is the one that's been commenced by uh, Dr. McCann in Queensland in respect of, I think, 500 people um, form that class. Um, And that's a class action, slightly different in New Zealand. Um, They're called a representative action in New Zealand and uh, certainly um, similar uh, things can be bought and action like this can be bought uh, in New Zealand. Where there is, um, I guess, a little bit of uncertainty is in Australia, uh, personal injury is able to be claimed. Uh, So if somebody physically hurts somebody else, um, then uh, you can sue them for personal injury. In New Zealand, we have ACC, and an ACC is a no-fault scheme, which means that if I'm hurt on the... uh, rugby field or hurt in a hospital or hurt on the road, uh, ACC will cover, well, should cover it if um, that person has um, has had a, a physical injury. Um, whether or not ACC is covering um, uh, vaccine injuries, I'm aware of quite a few uh, that they are not um, on grounds of technicality. Uh, so, that may be a situation where those that are being refused ACC might be a class of their own um, for the physical injury that ACC is refusing to cover. Uh, But separately, uh, there are um, losses that you can claim for outside of ACC, such as exemplary damages. So, yeah, it's a case of watch this space. Certainly there is talk about it um, and... Uh, it seems that it would be uh, appropriate for similar actions to be, um, or a similar action to be looked at in New Zealand. It might just have a slightly different shape because of um, you know ACC and and the limits to what people can do in New Zealand based on that legislation limiting the the ability right. to sue for personal injury. So gotcha. watch watch this space. Uh, I'm just thinking. Sorry, just just follow up on that. So, five hundred in the one that we we've, we've heard about in the last day or so, reported on Sky News over the weekend with the Queensland doctor. It seems like a 
quite a small number of people. What is the potential scale of, well, let's speak for Australia. Could there be a super class action? Because there's got to be more than 500 out there. Um, I'm not entirely across the reason for the limit of 500 people in, in um, Dr. McCann's class action uh, that she's uh, taking. But there is a accepted underreporting uh, value of um, reports to CALM or to DANES, which is the um, uh, adverse event reporting system uh, following a pharmaceutical product in Australia. And there's essentially, uh, even on New Zealand's CALM website, there's a suggestion that there is an under-reporting factor of 95%. So that means that only 5% of injuries are um, uh, being reported. The extrapolation of that um, number against those that are being reported suggests that serious injuries may be in the vicinity of Australia of a population of 26 million of about 125,000 to 150,000, potentially at least. Uh, so we're talking significant numbers. Wow. Well, that's a that's a provincial, large provincial cities worth of people out there. Okay, Nick, sorry, you were about to say something. I think there is the ability to claim for medical misadventure, uh, a medical, um, is it medical misadventure, I think? Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it used to be medical misadventure and medical mishap, and now I think it's just misadventure. Misadventure, yeah. So there's a famous case. So like the smear doctor down in uh, Napier Hastings, I forget his name, but uh, misread a whole bunch of uh, women's um, cervical smears. Uh, sadly, some of them got cancer and died. And I think, um, you know, the, the victims there, uh, well, the, some of the victims and even the families were able to sue their doctor. Um, and the argument was, of course, with statute barred. Uh, we were barred by ATC because ATC covers it. But by, again, this is 25 years ago, I learned this, but uh, there was... Um, yeah, there was an exemption in the ATC legislation then for medical misadventure. They were arg- able to argue it was uh, medical misadventure and they were successful in their claim. Okay. Um, when you said, uh, just quickly, technicalities, Katie, with ACC, what kind of technicalities? Are they trying to get people hung up on the slightest thing? How's that working? Yeah, I, I have to say I don't have the finite details on it, but right. the things that I'm I'm hearing uh, that people will make a um, claim um, for ACC and ACC is pushing back because uh, the claim doesn't satisfy the definition or the injury isn't described properly or they're suggesting that uh, the physical injury suffered isn't uh, necessarily the direct result of the vaccine. So um that's about as much as I could probably say on it at the moment without... Um, How do they know? Verified. How do they know? They, none of us know anything about this. There's been no data. How, how can they ever possibly know? Yeah, and look, they're doing a lot of work around um, causation, which is this concept of, um, you know, did the vaccine cause the injury? And, um, you know, there's a couple of different ways and methods of determining... Um, causation, uh, you know, time frame from when you had the vaccine, uh, and there is just an awful lot of energy being put into it by ACC to uh, suggest that the vaccine wasn't the cause of uh, the injury, and uh, they're spending a lot of, I, I understand, a lot of time and resources um, 
to reject uh, causation. Yeah, so I've got the exact numbers here. This is from an uh, Official Information Act request. And between the years 2005 to 2019, for all vaccines, uh, ACC received a total of 2,856 claims for vaccine injury, and that's including, you know, chicken pox and mumps and measles and whatever. Um, obviously, people get injured by those vaccines. So for a period of almost 15 years, uh, 2,856 claims to ACC by way of injury, as an injury for taking those vaccines. But the Pfizer vaccine in the period of less than one year, uh, about, well, basically a year from February 2021 to just January 2022, I think it was, so maybe 11 months, um, a total um, number of claims accepted by ACC of 1,708. So that so that basically the different 2,856 over a period of 15 years versus 1,708 over a period of less than one year. So pretty, pretty. Um, I don't know, you say impressive figures. I'm not sure how we say that. No, remarkable. Not, remarkable. They're not impressive, that's for sure. Yeah. The, the yeah there's a big neon arrow pointing to it, flashing bright. Correct, correct yeah. Mm. And these are called safety signals, um, which had we run these products in the ordinary course and they'd gone through all of their clinical trials, these would have been safety signals that they would have been identifying during the uh, during the clinical trial. Uh, so, um, you know, there's no clinical trials here. They're just waiting for the numbers to come through. Well, they're not even waiting. They're just receiving these claims. You nearly said criminal trial. <laughs> I know, that was... Um, Audience slip. Freudian slip. Well, no, it was a mistake. Okay, so um, we've talked about the IPCA, the Global Health Digital Health Certification, the the QR code reading thing, the Criminal Activity Intervention Bill. I'll have to redeposit that $10,000 I got under the pillow back into the bank. I guess they'll ask me how I got it. Will they? Where'd you get this from? (laughs) And report me back. And, uh, and be kind to the census people. That's our legal hub for this week. Thank you, Katie Ashby-Coppins and Nick Kearney. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Nick. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Katie. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.